If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We are working our way through the book of Matthew. We actually started Matthew um, almost a year and a half ago. This would have been November of 2015. The only reason I know that is because I was preaching in the Sunday evening services in November of 2015. So I gave one of the first sermons on Matthew. And here we are, uh, March 2017, and we're, we're almost there. Um, we, are, we are getting close to the end of the book, and we'll finish it, Lord willing, by the end of April. Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be starting really in the middle of the chapter, chapter uh, verse 57, and we're going to be finishing in the middle of chapter 27. Now, if you like nice, neat chapter breaks, chapter divisions, think of it this way. Think of us and what we're doing going through major scenes of a narrative, because that's what this is. The book of Matthew is a narrative. It is a story about Jesus written by one of the disciples to pronounce a certain aspect of Jesus' life. And so we're going to be looking at the trial and the sentencing of Jesus tonight. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question. When you think of someone who has been sentenced to capital punishment, sentenced to death, what type of person do you think of? Well, clearly a criminal, but I'm thinking of like what type of criminal comes to mind when you think of someone who's been sentenced to death? Uh, probably a murderer, someone who is is committed uh, in, our, in our society what we call a felony, and, and a first-degree felony, and maybe multiple felonies. Right? We think of someone who's really, really bad. Okay? Someone who is awful, and frankly, from a society standpoint, someone who would be better off no longer part of this planet. Like, it's not just that we are going to separate them from society. We are going to give them the punishment that they ultimately deserve, or you know, society is going to give them this punishment, because frankly, their existence here on earth is a threat. It's a threat. So when you think of the situation of Matthew chapter 26, okay, so Jesus will be, as you know, sentenced to death. But he's sentenced to death by religious leaders. He's not sentenced to death so much by um, the political leaders, although they certainly have a hand in it, and we'll look at it. But he's sentenced to death ultimately because he's a threat. He's a threat. He's a blasphemer. And frankly, his influence needs to be removed from their society. So in this section of the life of Jesus, where he's tried and sentenced to death, the Apostle Matthew presents five different parties that we're going to look at that reject King Jesus in some way. All five parties, and here they are, they're the chief priests and leaders, Peter, Judas, Pilate, and then the nation of Israel, all five have something in common. Each one of them, be they believers in the form of Peter, or unbelievers in the rest, they all saw Jesus as a threat to them. 
their response was to betray him, to disown him, abandon him, or crucify him. Judas obviously betrayed him. Peter dissociated with him, didn't want any public association. Pilate just wanted to be rid of him. And the chief priests and the nation of Israel wanted him, really, dead. They all rejected the king because King Jesus posed a threat to each one of them in different ways. We're going to look at these five examples and see how Jesus posed a threat to each one of them. So the first one we see, Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, we see the chief priests. And the chief priests, first of all, saw Jesus as a threat to their status. Jesus was a threat to their status. Let's look in verse 57. So those who seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as the far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though there were many false witnesses that came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I jury you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you now have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spat on his, in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who's the one that hit you? So we see these chief priests in that Jesus was a threat to their status. Now, Matthew's careful to indicate that these were, this was the house of Caiaphas, where the scribes and the elders, and in fact, depending on the translation you have, verse 57 says the teachers or the experts of the law. I think there's a certain level of irony here, because if there's any law, they're not following it. Just given the time of the trial, given what they were trying to try him for, they were abusing the, the law and they were showing their defiance of the law and their unwillingness to exercise it properly. And yet, here was Jesus, who as we've read just recently in Matthew, Jesus regularly confronted their hypocrisy and he, he undermined their authority, as it were. But not only this, by claiming to be the Christ, he was claiming their authority. And as we look at this passage, what you're going to see is that Jesus was referred to as the Christ multiple times. That's not insignificant. In other words, that is very significant. Even Pilate, later on, will see, this is the Christ. What are you going to do with the Christ? And by Jesus affirming that he was the Christ... What Jesus ultimately was doing was saying, I'm not just able to tell you that you're wrong. I'm your boss. I mean, you're the religious authorities. I am your religious authority. This no-named Nazarene who had a questionable 
parental lineage, right? We know who your father is, har, 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 right? So here this man was, certainly not of their echelon, not of their status, attacking them. At least that's the way they saw it. These experts of the law, these students of the Old Testament, these individuals who of all people should have seen the signs of the Messiah. Instead, they were threatened by Jesus. Now, what I want us to do is uh, we're going to look here just briefly at what Jesus says. Jesus says when they ask him, verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, you tell us whether or not you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, you've said it yourself. And not only that, he describes what they would have recognized to be the fulfillment of prophecy. In my, in my Bible, it has words in all caps. And it has cross-references there. And those are helpful tools. Those show, those show to me that, that what he was saying wasn't original to him. He was actually quoting Old Testament scripture, which, again, those experts of the law would have recognized right away. And he's saying, that's who I am. And as a result, their response should have been submission to the king. But no. So, Briefly, let's, let's look at uh, John chapter 11. Because I want, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to see something that took place a little while before this trial. Because it's interesting that as they are hitting Jesus, they're striking him, and they're saying, prophesy, who hit you? You know, there's a sense to where, you know, had he actually said something? Maybe they would have believed. But we have in John chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus, right? And it was a very public event. And, and people saw this man who had been dead for four days walk out of his tomb and, and have life just simply by Jesus calling him out. So in verse 47 of John 11, it says this, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. They knew what he was doing. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So, he's doing all these signs. And they're, you know, kind of uh, getting a, they're convening a council, and what do we do? And, and he's doing this. And, and their biggest fear wasn't the fact that the people would be deluded by false doctrine. Their biggest fear was that their influence as chief priests and scribes would be diminished. That they would be drawn away and follow him. Now compare that to John chapter 3 and John the Baptist. Right? When John the Baptist, who's just baptized many followers, who's recognized Jesus as the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sin of the world, and, and all of a sudden John the Baptist's followers are now following Jesus. And, and they go to John the Baptist and they say, John, doesn't it bother you that they're leaving you and, and following Jesus? And what does he say? He must increase while I must decrease. What a huge difference. But see, when, when, when you see Jesus as a threat, when Jesus is a threat to your status, to your authority, then you have to find a way to eliminate him. And that's exactly what these chief priests, these religious leaders 
did. So while this trial was taking place, let's go back to Matthew chapter 26. While this trial was taking place, one of Jesus' close followers, closest followers, was watching from a distance. And I say this, sadly, that close follower also saw Jesus as a threat. You see, the chief priests saw Jesus as a threat to their status. Peter saw Jesus as a threat to his safety. So let's look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. To Peter, at this time, Jesus was a threat to his safety. You see, Peter feared for his own well-being. He was afraid of being identified with Jesus at this point of time. And when the rooster crowed, it reminded him of what Christ predicted just a few hours earlier. Even when, and if, if, even when you think about the nature of that, that story, you know, what did Peter and the rest of the disciples say? You know, when Jesus says, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows, they say, I will never deny you. In fact, I'd be willing to what? Die for you. And here he was several hours later. Why? Because Peter was scared. Peter was afraid. He did not want to be identified with Jesus because he was scared. He was so bold in one moment. I mean, you think of, of earlier in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asks uh, the Peter and the disciples, who do, who do people say that I am? And we have, honestly, one of, Jesus, uh, one of Peter's like shining moments where he says, you are Jesus, the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And, and Jesus commends Peter. I mean, but that was within the safety of, of the disciples and Jesus, just them, just them. Yet Peter, when the screws were turned, when the rest of the disciples had fled, Peter got scared. And Jesus, in identifying with Jesus, was less valuable, and it was threatening to his safety. And he failed. Now, Peter was a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. And his sorrow for his sin was a godly sorrow and that he eventually confessed of the sin. He eventually joined back with the disciples after Christ's death. And ultimately, he actually gave his own life for the cause of Christ. But as we look in Matthew chapter 27, we see another disciple. We see another individual who was threatened by Jesus. Except this man's sorrow was not a godly sorrow. The chief priests and scribes, they were threatened by Jesus. Their status was threatened. He was a threat to their status. Peter, Jesus, was a threat to his safety. For Judas, on the other hand, Judas, in, in, I'm sorry, in Judas' eyes, Jesus was a threat to self-serving guilt. Jesus was a threat to self-serving guilt. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 27. Now, when the morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. 
and return the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what's that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. Judas, though one of the 12 disciples, we know that Judas had a secret lifestyle of looking out for himself. We see this especially in the Gospel of John where there's a commentary of Judas helping himself to the money bag. He was an embezzler. And we know that the night of which Jesus, Jesus was about to be betrayed, that Satan came and indwelt Judas. That doesn't happen to believers. Judas was an unbeliever. And Judas died as an unbeliever. Even though we see a level of guilt here that he expressed. You say, well, wait a second. You know, Peter, he abandoned Christ, and he felt guilty. What about Judas? I mean, look at the verbiage that Matthew uses to describe his guilt. Verse 3, Judas, when he had betrayed him, who had betrayed him, saw that he'd been contemned. He felt remorse. I bet that was sincere remorse. I'm positive he felt badly. And even going so far as to return the 30 pieces of silver. And look what he says. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So what's the problem? Why is Judas's guilt different than Peter's guilt? If I can ask that question. Well, he thought that turning over Jesus to the high priest would result in personal gain. And when he decided that that wasn't a good idea. He felt that simply going to the priests, returning the 30 pieces of silver, would be able to undo what he did. You see, really, at the end of the day, the most important person that needed to be mollified or, or uh, appeased in regards to Judas's guilt was Judas himself. It wasn't, that, I, it wasn't that Judas somehow felt guilty because he had betrayed the Messiah. Because notice what he says about him. Now, now, maybe this is parsing it too closely. I don't think so. But notice what Judas says to the chief priests about a man whom he had spent the last several years with. He says, I've, be, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Jesus is innocent. Not, I have betrayed the king. He didn't say, I have betrayed my Lord and my God, what Thomas said when he saw the resurrected Jesus after doubting him. And you see Peter's response. He goes out and weeps bitterly, but then continues to align with the disciples. We find him in the upper room. We find him going to the tomb. We find him fishing with the disciples afterward. We find him being told by Jesus, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Judas? Judas took measures to see to it that he wouldn't have to deal with the messy consequences of his betrayal. Because Judas was the focal point of Judas. And Jesus was a threat to that. At the end of the day, Judas couldn't just simply say sorry and make it go away. And so he took his life. And we see the Pharisees going and buying this field. And actually, again, within the theme of the book of Matthew, 
Even the betrayal of, of, of the Messiah, of the king, was part of God's plan from the beginning. When I see, and I hope that, that as you read through uh, this portion of scripture, when we see Jesus' death, when we see the Old Testament referred back to as we do in verses 9 and 10, that should be comforting because things are not spiraling out of control as they would appear to have been. No, this is all very much part of God's plan, even going so far as, wow, this detail of purchasing a field, you know, this, this aspect of fulfilling, of, of it being a picture of what happened in the Old Testament. God's still very much in control. Jesus is still very much the king, okay? So we have three people that found Jesus to be a threat. The fourth He's different than the others because he's a Gentile. This is Pilate. Pilate comes on the scene in verse 11. Now you say, Jesus was a threat to Pilate? Absolutely he was. Jesus was a threat to Pilate in the, form of the, in the fact that, that Jesus was a threat to stability, to stability to Pilate. Let's look at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And could you imagine? You know, this is the king of the Jews, this is the, this is the Messiah, and, and Pilate has face-to-face -face interaction with him and asks him point blank, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it is as you say, yeah. Verse 12, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he didn't answer him with regard to even a single charge so that the governor was quite amazed. Now, at the feast of the governor... One, I'm sorry, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people one, at any one time, any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or, again note, Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they handed him over. Now, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to him, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. He said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. And we'll look at verses 25 and 26 in just a moment. But we said that to Pilate, Jesus was a threat to stability. Jesus, uh, Pilate tries to reason with the crowd, hoping that he'll be able to just you know, pacify them. He offers another criminal, Barabbas, whose offenses far outweighed any offense that they might have with Jesus. And to Pilate, Jesus really wasn't a threat initially. And you have even his wife, you have this interchange of his wife having this dream and, and saying, just, just don't, don't, mess, don't mess with this guy. Just, just you know, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Notice how she describes him. However, Pilate sees a riot that's about to take place, and he in turn pacifies the mob by handing Jesus over and letting them deal with him. And in a hollow gesture, he washes his hands, literally, of the wrongdoing. And so though his actions may have been for the civic good, there's about a riot, to, there's a riot that was about to, to, to take place. Pilate was still guilty of rejecting 
the king. Like I said, he had a face-to-face conversation with Jesus, and Jesus himself confronted Pilate with the truth. Now, in the corresponding con- uh, uh, passage in John chapter 18, the Jews actually come to Pilate and say, it is not lawful for us to put a man to death. And they were right. So Pilate valued stability more than he valued the life of Christ. And at the end of the day, he's still guilty. And rather than deal with the rabble, he just said, all right, you handle him. I'm done. I'll give you what you want. He valued stability. Why? Because Jesus was, Jesus was a threat to that stability. And so the fifth group of individuals that were a threat or that, that Jesus was a threat to ultimately was the nation of Israel itself. Look in verse 26. I'm sorry, uh, verse, uh, going back to verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing rather than a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See that yourself. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Jesus was a threat to the status of the chief priests in Sanhedrin. Jesus was a threat to the safety of Peter. Jesus was a threat to the self-centered guilt of Judas. And Jesus was a threat to the stability, stability that Pilate wanted at his appointed post. And finally, Jesus was a threat to the citizens of Israel themselves in that he was not the kind of king they were looking for. You see, Israel was really looking for a Moses. And you think back of Moses in, in the Old Testament. And Moses comes back into Egypt and does what? He comes and the nation of Israel that's underneath the the rule of Egypt, they're slaves, and Moses comes and he brings down plagues, right? And and all the, the, the Egyptians, they're seeing the mighty works of God. And Moses leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And eventually they make it to the promised land, right? That's the kind of a a king that these Jews were looking for. They weren't looking for someone who would come and point out the hollowness of their religion. They weren't looking for a king who somehow would point out the fact that their greatest need wasn't to be out from underneath Roman rule. Their greatest need was to be free from the sin that they were enslaved to. And so their expectations were far from being met. And this person, this man, this, again, this man from Nazareth with no reputation, who didn't match what they were looking for, what they were expecting, needed to be eliminated. Now, we have here in Matthew, it's clear that the chief priests and the the, the religious leaders were stirring up the crowd. But notice the verbiage there in verse 25. It says, and all. All the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. All of Israel was implicated with guilt. They were all calling for Christ's crucifixion. They willingly accepted the responsibility for Jesus' death when Pilate washed his hands. It wasn't as if Pilate washes his hands and he says, hey, I'm innocent. And they're like, well, no, 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 no. Okay, just the the, the chief priests, they're, they're the ones that are leading this. Nope. We welcome the responsibility. In fact, not only do we welcome it, our nation welcomes it. His blood be on us and on our children. Maybe it's a statement of hyperbole, but it's certainly a statement that was willing to take on the blame 
of crucifying this man who claimed to be the Messiah. All five people or groups of people, all five people or groups, demonstrated a pattern of self-centeredness that had Christ's crucifixion as the end result. And the reality of this points to the thought I want to leave with you tonight. What do we take from all this? When your life centers on yourself, you will see Jesus as a threat. When your life centers on yourself, Jesus will be a threat to you. And don't be surprised when self-centered people, including you, treat Jesus more like a threat instead of a Messiah. Why is this? Or how can this be? Well, because if Jesus is king, and he is, then the king deserves obedience. The king has the right to be obeyed. And yet, as we heard this morning from Pastor Ken, as we've been learning through Romans, and as many of us can attest to in our pre-salvation lives, the last thing we want to do is take an authority on that's greater than ourselves. No. You see, a king has the right for his people to obey him. And if I can put it this way, the king has the right to micromanage the lives of those who he rules. And we don't want that. In our nature, in our sin natures, we don't want that. We want to be the ruler of ourselves. You know why? Because we feel like that will bring about the greatest good for us. All right. So think of, excuse me, whew, that could be bad. Um, think of a doctor's office. How many of you have been in a doctor's office recently? Okay, so in a doctor's office, if you go there, normally you'll see this, this picture, and it has 10 different, 10 different faces. Okay, one has a number zero, it has a big smiley face on it. 10 has like, you know, has a, and, and, and a guy crying. And basically, it's the pain index, right? And so the goal is to go into the doctor and hopefully be lower on the pain index when you leave or when you're done getting the treatment than what you were when you first walked in. So if you walk in and you're on an eight, you know, you're not like in agony, but you're high on the pain index, right? You want to get whatever treatment it is so that your pain index will be much, much lower. Ideally, zero. The thing is, as Christians, we often want that to be our lives. I forget Christians, everybody wants this to be true of their lives. Everyone wants a zero on their pain index. But when you become a Christian, guess what? You sign up for a pain index. What does Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself. Take up their cross and follow me. You know what Jesus was saying? If anyone would come after me, in a certain sense, you're signing up for capital punishment. This will cost you. And the difference between belief and unbelief, the difference between the only two types of people in this room, there are believers and there may be unbelievers, those are the only two people on the face of the planet, is the fact that one group is part of the believing community and they understand that this costs them everything. And the other group 
But unbelievers, it's not worth the cost. And in fact, when they're confronted with that cost, mm -mm. don't tell me that I'm not religious. Don't tell me that I'm not right. You can't, what do you know about me? You mean to tell me that everything that I've done, everything that I believe, everything that my parents have believed, everything that with my grandparents, that that's all wrong? You see, each part of, of each of the five different ways that Jesus seemed to be a threat to these people can play out both in unbelievers and believers' lives. Especially when we recognize that, that you know, in our own, in our condition without Christ, we are the center of our own universe. For an unbeliever, self-centeredness, it, 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 does it manifest itself in our status? Absolutely. Our safety, absolutely. Our self-serving guilt, absolutely. I, I mean, seriously. So, so when I go to confession and I tell my priest all of my sins and he tells me to do whatever it is and I feel badly for that and I do that, that that's not somehow good enough for God? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. The only one that truly offers forgiveness is through Christ. He threatens stability. So you mean to tell me that by accepting Christ, by being a follower of Jesus Christ, that might upset my family and my grandparents and my great, because they're going to look at me and they're going to ask me some of the same questions that you're, you're telling me. You mean that, that they're wrong? So if they don't believe this, they're going to hell? Is that what you're going to tell me? Is that what you're telling me? You think that's going to upset the family a little bit? Think that's going to upset the apple cart? He threatens self, selfish expectations. You mean, so this marriage that just isn't working out, I'm supposed to stick with this? That's what you're telling me? You mean these sexual desires that I have in me that I didn't even really ask for? That, that you're telling me that I, I can't express them the way I want to? That my identity, who I am, you're telling me that that's not right? You see, what King Jesus does is he acts like a king because he is a king. Because all of these things that were threats to the unbelievers, and even to Peter as a believer, really are remedied by the fact that when we come to Jesus as king, we realize that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That the cost that comes from being a disciple far outweighs the pleasures of sin that only last for a season. And instead of indulging in the pleasures of sin for a season, and instead of seeing Jesus as somehow being a threat and a killjoy to my life, instead, he's a king. Instead, he's a savior. And my greatest enemy, it's the sin that's in me. And he provides the solution for that. You say, this isn't just exclusive for, for unbelievers, because we as believers, we still wrestle with the same things. We still wrestle with the desire for status. Recognizing that a bowed head before a meal at work might garner some ridicule. Recognizing that 
not being able to work all of the Sunday shifts because of you being a, a church boy, church girl, churchy, might cost you. Might cost you financially. Might cost you an ability to, to raise yourself. Maybe the ethical standards that you have and how you do your job will limit your upward mobility in that job. But it's worth it, right? We see, we feel that battle, that, that flesh that doesn't go away. Just, when, just because we're saved, it doesn't mean our flesh is somehow eradicated and it's, it's gone. No, we still have that flesh that we're battling against. The, the threats to our safety, the fact that, you know, honestly, in our society, we might get ridicule. We might get some verbal, you know, tongue lashings, mockery, whatever. I mean, we, we do need to remember, though, that there is a really big world of believers outside of the United States of America, and, and even just owning one of these could, could result in incarceration. And, and the, the threat of safety, uh, the threat that, that, that Jesus poses on our personal safety it looks different for different people. And just because it might not be as vivid or you know, as, as great for you doesn't mean that that threat doesn't exist for your brothers and sisters in Christ halfway across the world. The wrestling match we have with sin and the battles that we face internally with guilt and frankly, why we want to be done with sin in the first place and, and can I tell you, sometimes the selfish ways that we approach asking for forgiveness from the standpoint of, I feel so terrible and I don't want to feel this way. You know, or, or the consequences of perhaps our sin that we just want to be done away with as opposed to the fact that that sin nailed Christ to the cross. And the fact that Jesus, when he tells us to come to him, he tells us how to come to him. And we come to him on his terms, and it threatens a self-serving form of guilt. Clearly, having a testimony for Jesus Christ threatens a level of stability, as we mentioned before. And then, when, when, we, when we follow Christ and we decide, you know, he, he's drawn us to him, and we are disciples of Jesus Christ, we forfeit the right to determine what the expectations and how things are going to play out. We, we, we forfeit that. We, we gave that up a long time ago. And so how God uses you within the body of Christ might look a whole lot different and might look less significant, or at least from the outward standpoint, than he's using somebody else. How things are playing out with your children and how they're living for the Lord and the level of investment you made in them and how they are or aren't living for the Lord and then you see your peers and their children and how they're living for the Lord and you think, what did I do wrong? God, I thought I did everything right. God, I've kept myself pure. I've kept myself, I prayed for a godly spouse and I really want a godly spouse and here I am and, and it seems like everyone else is finding things, finding spouse, finding happiness and, and I'm not. God has the right to define what the expectations are and he gets to change them mid-course, as it were. Not that he's changing them, it's just the fact that we're adjusting to them. 
Sometimes I wonder if when we're going through difficulties, we're worried more about learning lessons than we are becoming more like Christ. God, what are you trying to teach me in this? Forget about what he's trying to teach you. How are you becoming more like Christ? How are you changing? You know, in my college and crew group, we talked about this and, and specifically how, you know, the important thing isn't so much like, okay, here's what I learned from this trial. That, that, that's good. But it carries much less value than how are you more like Christ as a result of this trial. That is fundamentally important because then I'm actually living out what the Bible says is going to happen. I mean, Job, how many lessons did he learn? And we don't experience anything like Job. To that end, there's only two types of people on the planet. There's saved and there's unsaved. Though an unbeliever might not say Jesus is a threat, the cost of following him is too great. He's a threat to their self-authority. And so when they die in their sins and they spend an eternity in hell, it won't be because somehow they didn't get enough of God's grace. Rather, they saw it as threatening to them. And if I can just end with this. So we have someone who really, really blew it, but was a Christian. And, and maybe in the course of this type of a sermon, you think about, man, man, I have so seen Jesus unintentionally, but I've done it. I've seen him as a threat. And, and I want us to take encouragement from guys like Peter. You know, this is not his finest hour by any stretch. Yet was Peter used by the Lord? Absolutely he was. And what we learned from Peter, even though he saw Jesus at that point in time in ministry as a threat to his safety, what we learned from Peter is that it's never too late to do right. What we learned from Peter is that God is a gracious and loving God. And he is willing to forgive how you respond is up to you. I mean, ultimately, a Christian perseveres. A Christian pursues holiness, and when he fails, or she fails, they persevere. They get up. They confess their sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But they don't see Jesus as this ongoing threat and become greater, farther and farther and farther away from him. No, that believer desires reconciliation. And what do they experience? They experience what Peter experienced. Remember there on the, the, after the great catch of fish in John chapter 21, where, where they're awkwardly sitting around the campfire? And, and Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Asks them three times. Jesus denies them three times. Clearly parallel. And he says what? Well, you blew it. So now you have a lifetime to, to have to prove it back. No. He says what? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Peter, you're a leader. Peter, you're going to be a leader. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. It's never too late to do right. Listen, we have got to see as Christians, those of you who know Christ, got to understand that failure is not final, that when Jesus died for our sin, he died for past, present, and future sin. And when we are debilitated by guilt, can I tell you, that is a self-serving guilt. It's not a guilt that leads to greater obedience. But we confess, we forsake, and we grow. 
And it doesn't look very sensational, but that's what Christians do. That's what perseverance looks like. Five different threats. How could someone like Jesus, the one who healed, the one who raised the dead, the one who, who, who made food for thousands, how could someone like Jesus be put on death row? Because he was a threat. If you don't know Christ and you're in this room, would you stop seeing him as a threat? He's not here to take joy. He's not here to make your life miserable. But if you reject him, he'll do just that. The way of the transgressor is hard. And eternity, it only gets worse. Would you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ? And those who do believe, would we, would we stop? Would, would we start? How about this? Uh, let's put it in the affirmative. Would we start appealing to Christ, knowing that he has removed the obstacles between him and us, knowing that he is looking forward to us being united with him in glory, and that gives us the motivation to persevere, even when, like a Peter, we fall flat on our face. Okay, let's pray.